Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Um, I'm honored um, to, to introduce you to our speaker tonight, Don Paul. Don is a leading expert in energy research and policy. He's an expert in the, the marketplace for energy, energy-based uh, technologies, uh, and he is, um, he's, I'm going to tell you about what he's doing right now. But first I want to say why I think there's some people from across the campus uh, here tonight that are not, we don't usually see at our, at our uh, events. UC Davis is a major has, has decided that it is going to be a major player in the energy debates and, and new technologies that are, that are uh, being developed to assure our energy future. Um, three years ago, we founded the, the UC Davis Energy Efficiency Center with a challenge grant from California Clean Energy Fund. Um, it was the very first university-based energy efficiency center in the U.S., to focus on the speed of transferring uh, energy-saving products and services into the, into the marketplace. And I think, as you all know, the, the most energy-efficient molecule is one you don't use, uh, or electron is the one you don't use. And um, we're, we're uh, very excited to be part of this. And the, the, the Energy Efficiency Center is housed in, our, in the Graduate School of Management. And it was founded, the initial um, director was uh, Professor Andrew Hargadon. So we feel very, very connected to this effort. Most recently, um, Chevron Corporation gave UC Davis $2.5 million to create a permanent leader, um, leadership position for the Energy Efficiency Center, and we will be, um, we will be searching for that, uh, that new director. And th- this money will allow us to expand the impact of the, uh, the programs and the, the activities and the research that the center is, uh, is doing. Um, I hope Don Paul is uh, happy to hear that because Don was uh, just stepped down from a 33-year distinguished career with Chevron uh, Corporation uh, this last year. And I met Don five years ago when he was the keynote speaker for our kickoff event at in San Ramon for our our working professional MBA program there, and that was Don spoke, and it was sort of our we hope this adventure works, and we graduated our first class uh, uh, last June, and we are recruiting for our fourth class now, and it's 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 a resounding success. The classes get bigger, and it's a very very strong program with very strong students. So Don, you you uh, you sprinkled the magic dust on it, and all is going well. At, uh, at, at uh, Chevron, Don held a variety of positions in research and technology exploration and production operations. Um, he was uh, and include he he was also um, he in- including service as president of uh, Chevron's Canadian subsidiary. He was uh, Chevron's chief technology officer when I first met him, and he was responsible for the corporation's three major technology subsidiaries energy technology, information technology, and technology ventures. He served as the global compliance officer for information protection, security, and data privacy. He was uh, involved in forming external research and technology partnerships with governments, businesses, and universities, including our campus. Uh, So uh, Don is a friend of our campus. Um, He directed Chevron's efforts to build cooperative partnership with U.S. government agencies and national labs, 
in energy research and development, alternative fuel infrastructure, high-performance computing, and cybersecurity for oil and gas. His public service record is really extensive, and I'll just tell you a little. He was part of the 1997 Presidential Panel on Federal Energy Research and Development, the National Research Council, and the, and the 2007 landmark study uh, by the National Petroleum Council for the Secretary of Energy. And he continues to serve on a, a number of boards uh, uh, and university, um, and both university and private sector activities. Uh, he is a senior advisor <clears throat> for the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. And he worked to establish the Center for Interactive Smart Oil Field Technologies, which is a, a highly successful partnership between uh, University of Southern California and Chevron. Uh, which focuses on advanced information and media technology to oil and gas field automation, marrying, um, marrying uh, uh, um, energy work and IT work. He is, um, he is uh, uh, very highly educated. He holds uh, BS, MS, and PhD degrees from, in applied math, geology, and geophysics, all from MIT. And I want to um, congratulate Don on an exciting new appointment at another top research university uh, down south with the initials USC. Um, and so he is, uh, he is uh, uh, a colleague now in a, in a, uh, as, a, as an academic. Uh, he was named last week the executive director of USC's Energy Institute and he is the holder of the William M. Keck Chair in Energy Resources. Um, in his new role as a, uh, a faculty member, he's going to continue to expand the opportunities for energy research. And if you heard the numbers attached to the stimulus bill, there ought to be a lot of resources to work with. Um, he's going to continue his efforts to, to link researchers and practitioners in science, in business, and in technology and government, and to look at some of the very real problems uh, and opportunities that face us all today. So please um, help me in welcoming Don Paul. Thank you, Nicole. And um, it's a d delight to be here this evening and spend about the next 30 minutes giving you uh, maybe a slightly different view than you might expect seeing this topic and um, challenge you to think about the system of energy and where we're going in the future a little bit differently. And I fully expect some really challenging questions because one of the management lessons I learned long ago is in difficult times or challenging times, whether they're hard or whether it's you're seeking a a new opportunity, if all you get back are the responses that you put out, then you are a damn poor manager. So I want to hear some challenging questions from the audience, and I expect I will. Well, let's get started then. I have three themes that I want to discuss. I talk a little bit about the fundamentals of the system, and I, I find a surprising, maybe not surprising, that the kind of key things that drive the energy system whether it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, today or tomorrow, a lot of these are fundamental. And as we evolve the energy system, they're still going to play out. Talk about the question of how you forecast supply and demand and what these forecasts say. Note they're forecasts, not, they're not reality. Let's keep that in mind. And I want to talk a little bit at the end about some key issues that I think pose both risks and opportunities in energy. 
Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, we talked about what are the fundamentals, complexity, scale, and time. Energy is never about one thing. It's always a combination of factors. It is indeed about technology, but it's not about technology. It is about business and economics, for sure, but it's about more than that. And policy um, and government have a big role to play, and this has always been true. And as we go down, and I'll show you some examples, these roles move around, they play out in different forces. I think we're in a new regime today in the balance between what's the role of government, the role of business, and the role of technology. We'll see how that plays out in the future. It's always been about scale. And I think this is the other key thing that describes energy and has specific attributes about it. And a trillion is a magic number. You know, I, when I used to give this talk, a trillion was a new word to a lot of people. Not anymore. Not. <clears throat> so maybe, no, and I'm in all seriousness. The adjustment of people's psyche to the word trillion, I think, actually has, will have some impacts, lasting, perhaps. But trillion is the number in energy. When you talk about fuel, is a trillion gallons a year are used by the world. Now, what's that mean? Let me bring it down to Earth. It's half a gallon for every human on Earth every day. Half a gallon for every human on Earth every day. So it's a big system. When we talk about power, the United States has a trillion watts of electric power generation. Now, when somebody built, in fact, SoCal Edison just announced the biggest solar thermal plant. I mean, it's a fantastic project in Southern California. 1.3 gigawatts of solar, direct solar conversion, solar to steam to power, not photovoltaic. Uh, biggest of its kind in the world by far. That's important. In fact, it's enough to move the needle in California, but it's still a tenth of 1% of this nation. So the key issue about energy is it's going to take everything. And you'll hear that come back. Uh, resources. The world has produced about a trillion barrels of oil since Drake's well. In the next, there's about a trillion barrels of reserves People argue about whether they're real and so on, but I believe they are. The difference is, in the first 125 years, to consume the first trillion, we'll consume the next trillion in less than 30. Now, the question is, how much is left? And I'll talk a little bit about that as we go, go on. Um, and then investment. The numbers keep rising, but the current best estimate by the International Energy Agency is $30 trillion in the energy system in the next 25 years. This is the largest stream of capital investment in the history of the world. In the Chinese stimulus package, very different looking than the U.S. one, for those who have been following this, uh, basically $200 plus billion of direct investment in energy infrastructure. Three or four times that of U.S., interesting. But trillions of dollars. So I think the key aspect here, the scale is enormous. And the challenge to many new technologies are not that they work, not even that they work enough to make money with them, but can you make them 10,000 times the size? And scale-up has effects. And I think this is one of the key challenges. One of the other things that I often say to people 
of course, coming from an oil and gas company, would always say is the most attract, one of the most attractive elements of solar energy is its scale-down effects. It works just as well whether there's a square foot of thin film solar as whether you cover an entire top of a Walmart. It all works the same. So it has, a, it has infinite scalability. One of its great characteristics, which I personally think will play out and be important as we evolve the energy system. The other aspect that I think is very much underappreciated about energy is that history, today, and the future, they all coexist in energy because things last so long. There are things today in the system that are 100 years old. There are things that are 20 years old. And anything you build today will last 30 or 40 years. This is a distinguishing characteristic and I tell my friends in the IT business, it's not software for this one specific reason. You don't have the option taking down the system tonight at midnight, as we used to often do, swapping out the operating system, bringing the system back up on a new platform the next morning. That's not what happens in energy. When you build it, you have it, and you have it for decades. And so it's important when we think about how this system might evolve, but let me to give you a little tour of history and demonstrate this complexity. This is from BP Statistical Review last year. Uh, this is a plot of average oil prices in constant dollars to 1861 through, actually, that's a misprint, 2009. There's the data point, February 2009, okay? So what does this thing kind of say? Well, it says a couple of things. We obviously have a couple of different periods in here. There's a long period in here from about the end of the 1880s through until obviously something happened here, another period, and then something happened here. So let me give you a little tour, and I think it helps understand the history which you live with, but more importantly, it has fundamentally, I would argue, fundamentally shaped the energy business of not just the U.S., but the world fundamentally shaped the political debate about energy. Okay, 1870. Drake's discovery was back here in 1859. Basically said you could drill for oil instead of dig for it. Actually, oil existed a long time before where there were natural flows at the surface. People go in with shovels and dig it up. But he demonstrated you didn't have to do that. You could actually go down, in his case, hundreds of feet, but ultimately, today, miles and that changed. But in 1870, Standard Oil, Rockefeller formed Standard Oil. And what was the business issue here? He decided that the problem with the oil business was it wasn't sufficiently large. It didn't integrate enough things together. And he was really the first person to realize that integrated supply chains and scale would matter for, uh, for oil. In 1908, the Model T Ford. This was significant because in the few years before, here became the discoveries of the great California oil fields. Anybody that saw the movie There Will Be Blood is about the Central Valley, early developments, turn of the century. And a string of giant oil fields were discovered in California. That combined with the fact that now there was a major use created a convergence that was either the greatest business synergy in history or the worst nightmare, depending on your perspective, which was the fact that the U.S. was clear now. The U.S. had 
basically nearly unlimited oil resources. And in fact, if you look at the whole history, the United States had more, and still does, not today, but has produced more oil than all of Saudi Arabia. The U.S. is by far the largest source of hydrocarbons in the world. That combined with the automobile, and you have a magical, a magical business. But other things began to happen as a result of this, of course. Now, in 1910, the U.S. has produced 60% of the world's oil. This is double the share OPEC has. So the United States was a huge producer, in fact, the primary supplier of oil on a world scale, far beyond, actually, what we see from OPEC. I think this became embedded in the psyche of America about energy independence and all of these things. The whole infrastructure for energy use in America was driven by the fact that you were by far the largest supplier. You had a huge surplus in excess of what you needed to produce, and you had the biggest automobile business in the world. And down the road, literally, you went. But then things started to happen. 1911, the government decided that Standard Oil was too big. At that time, it controlled 90% of the refining market in the United States. So private monopolies were a bad idea. But at the same time, it decided that public monopolies were okay. And in 1919, the Texas Railroad Commission gained control of production. In fact, it, it, was, it had so much power in Texas in the Texas production, it could allocate price and production by well. So we have private monopolies are no good, government monopolies and regulation were. And that changed the fundamental structure of oil and gas. We go on. Uh, through the war, by the way, which you can see in here, uh, the U.S. supplied for an equivalent of both sides, both the Allies and the Axis. Together, the U.S. supplied six out of every seven barrels of oil used in the world in World War II. Completely supplied the Allies and the Russians. <clears throat> the other thing that happened was, by the way, in 1923 was the peak of the California oil production. At that time, California produced 25% of the world's oil in California. So the U.S. was a major producer in this system, and, it's, and it affected the whole infrastructure, much of what you see today. Uh, notably, why the U.S. is different than Europe. Well, Europe got to start over after World War II. So did Japan. Fuel was scarce. There was not much indigenous, there was zero indigenous hydrocarbons in Japan. So it's not surprising that Japan and Europe, early out of the gate, developed extremely fuel-efficient systems. Whereas the U.S., if you didn't use it, you had to chip it out. Or, as the Texas Railroad Commission did over here, they had to clamp down so that the value of oil didn't fall to zero which it was in the 1930s. So, but then two significant things happened to change the nature of energy use in the United States. We built the world's, by far, the world's most extensive road system. The second thing was commercial jet travel. And that changed, was a major inflection point in the use of jet fuel for transit and actually marked the... Um, uh, the, the commercial rise of the aerospace uh, business after, after uh, what happened later. Now, in 1960, the formation of OPEC, the original four members, 
Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela said, we're going to take control of our resources. Up to that point in time, resources were controlled by American and European oil companies. OPEC, when it formed, took the original charter and operating documents of the Texas Railroad Commission and basically duplicated them, per se. The Texas Railroad Commission invented cartel and how our cartel should operate. I think it's an interesting. So we actually taught them how to operate. Then, of course, a number of other things that began to change the whole nature of the way certainly oil and gas would work in the United States. Number one, the discovery of Prudhoe Bay, 1968, biggest oil field in North America. And it looked like now, even though the U.S. had not reached a maximum in its production, a lot of geologists are saying, well, the onshore fields were going to give way, and here was Prudhoe Bay. And there were potentially many more to follow, including a well that I don't know, and I, think, I don't know if there's anybody still alive that knows, in Anwar as to what, where you would follow on. But something changed. The Unical blowout of 1969 altered for all time the relationship of many members of the community in the United States and the government, the relationship about oil and gas development. Oil and gas development basically ceased in California, even though California was on its way to being the size of Texas. And affected materially the idea about significant expansions in Alaska. And I would argue probably provided the key impetus for the growth of the environmental movement. U.S. production peaks in 1970, and the world shifts. The world shifts from one controlled, from basically 100 years, the United States controlled the world energy system. So it's not surprising to me that some people sit back and say, well, of course we have to have control of the energy system. We always did. Note that no other major economy in the world ever did, only the United States. And I think that I'll come back and talk about that a little bit later. Then, of course, the Arab oil embargo. This clinched the fact that the U.S. was no longer in control and set many views in the United States about what energy needs to be. Then, of course, the Iranian Revolution. And now you had a factor of 10 increase in the price uh, of oil, a huge rattling in the system, basically about double the change that we've seen in the last, from, from the 80s uh, and early 90s to uh, the peak that we had last summer. Then came the event that actually, for sure, locked down the views about U.S. oil and gas and development. That's the Exxon Valdez spill uh, in 1989. That was clearly the end, probably, and maybe forever, of Arctic development in the United States, as the Unical spill was for development in California. So this changed the structure of the U.S., and what else happened? What else happened was the industry, the oil industry, the global one, but the U.S. companies in particular said, okay, that's fine, then we'll go elsewhere. And in fact, the, the positive attribute of this is it actually forced globalization and the connection of the energy system on a global scale to where it is today. 
1993. And in this period of time, this is what I would say is, these were the days, cheap oil, plenty of it, U.S. dominated and controlled the system. World shifts. U.S. no longer dominates. Oil gets expensive, major crash. And then this piece, in my view, the world has changed again. And we'll talk some more about that. China becomes a net oil importer in 1993 and isn't looking back. It's now by, it's the second largest user of energy in the world, uh, and it's undoubtedly going to continue. Uh, but that started to shift the system. In 2002, I'll come back to this, the non-OECD, the non-industrialized group of economies shifted doubled its growth rate in energy consumption. And I think that's probably what drove us up this line here. And then, of course, it eventually cracked the world economy. But even with that, last month, China became the world's largest auto purchaser. Another, I think, significant event in the way things are going to, do, going to go, considering that in the United States, there's one-plus car per person. In China, it's still only a few per hundred. So depending on how China evolves, we'll tell you a lot about how the energy system evolves in the world. So that's kind of a, a, a tour of history, but you see the same thing. The system is complicated, sometimes dominated by government, sometimes dominated by economics, sometimes dominated by environment. That Those things will continue to play out in the future, in my view. Now let's shift gears, talk about forecasts. And I'm going to show you some. Forecasts are models. You have to build a mathematical model that relates supply, demand, issues about efficiency, issues about technology and all that. The models for energy are very big and very complicated. There are two main agencies in the world that do this for a living. The Energy Information Agency, EIA.org, or .gov, rather. You can go on the website, get all the data you want. IEA, which is European equivalent. They build very complex models. They depend critically on assumptions, like all models. No forecast accounts for discontinuities. None of them forecasted the major global recession. None of them forecasted a restructuring of the global capital system. So that's the problem with forecasting. And one of the challenges you have when you're looking at the energy future, when you look at these forecasts, is what did they leave out? What didn't they assume? about what's going to happen. Let's have a look at some of the things that the forecasts say, and you can ask yourself how reasonable they are. This one, I think, is a sure bet. This is a plot of the shift, the structural shift in demand. What you see is OECD, total energy use. You know, we're right here, right at this crossover. This is that inflection point in 2002 when it shifted onto a different curve. This was basically the inflection point where China really rocketed up along with India and Southeast Asia. But what it says is that we're at the crossover where in the future, the structure of demand for energy of all kinds, power and fuel, in the world is not controlled by the advanced economies anymore. And that's significant in my view what's going to happen. Population growth plus economic growth is what's driving that. Now, 
what's the composition of this? I find this a kind of interesting slide in some ways. This is from the EIA's last analysis published this summer. Here we are in 05, OECD composition, oil, gas, coal, nuclear, renewable for non-OECD. That's 05, looking out 2030, what do you see? One is this one's a lot bigger, right? It's gotten bigger. But the striking thing is oil's kind of the same. It's gone up a little bit. Big growth in coal. You might ask why that is, and we'll maybe talk about that in a little bit. Uh, renewables have gotten bigger, and in fact, this growth rate for renewables is the current growth rate projected out for 20 years. So what's the message? The message is if we're going to expand the renewable segment of the growth, which would be basically from here to here, which is about 40 or 50 percent, if renewables were to take half that growth, it would take a growth rate significantly higher than the current system. In fact, it would take a growth rate about the same as IT. So when I say to people, uh, when I say, look, some of these other elements aren't going away anytime soon. There's a problem with coal potentially because of the carbon issue. But renewables are going to grow as fast as they can. It's just that the system is so big that to get to even 10 or 15 percent of the system will require every solar panel and every windmill you can possibly construct. That's because the system is so large. So it's going to take all of it to meet this. But we'll come back and talk about the implications of that. Let me talk about the challenge on fuel and oil. And because oil is the primary source of, of transportation fuel, and because it's been produced the longest, and the resource base is therefore the most developed, there's a, there's a concern. In fact, there's a whole theory called the peak oil theory. There's a whole constituency that talks about the fact uh, that oil is going to run out. Uh, this summer, when oil was at an 140-plus number of meetings in Washington, I attended one of the more vociferous and well-regarded because of his book called Twilight in the Desert about the decline of Saudi Arabia. Matt Simmons argued that oil was not only going to get to $200, it was going to be $600. Uh, I never, personally never agreed with that. When asked what I thought the prices were, I said it's $100 plus or minus 60. And of course people said, well, I can't possibly be 40. You know, it's 140 now. It's, we'll be lucky if it's not 200. Well, it's always something. So, <clears throat> let me explain this chart, but it's this green line and the gray lines, you can argue about what the decline. This is basically physics and geology. This is the decline of the existing base and the reserves that we know about. This is going to occur. Now, it might be a little better with technology. It doesn't fall as fast. Uh, but basically, that's what it's going to do. This is the demand curve. It's got a little bit of range. Depends upon efficiencies. Uh, all these curves assume significant increases in auto efficiency and household efficiency and so on. But whether maybe you do better and you're down here. But anyway, you cut it, by 2030, you have got to add a production base in oil that's as big as the one you have now. You need to add three Saudi Arabias. 
So I would argue this is probably not going to be easy. Okay? And where is it going to come from? You're going to get some out of OPEC, some out of conventional non-OPEC, and then a huge swath from unconventionals and biofuels. A whole raft of new kinds of feedstock are going to have to be introduced or you're going to fall way short. Now, another way to look at it is maybe that's the opportunity for electric vehicles because you're going to be able to use substitute electrons for molecules. But the key challenge is this gap is enormous. Now, the gap, gaps like this, but not as high a level, looked the same 20 years ago. And you filled them up with new discoveries and expanded production. The reason this is more significant today are twofold. One, this level is very high. The second one is somewhere out in here, you will have used up about half of the conventional base and you won't go up anymore. We're approaching half. The peak guys think it's now. Some of us, myself, think it's 2020 or 2025, but on the scale of things, they're not that different. Well, but the world's not running out of resources. So one shouldn't confuse the challenges you might have in taking the conventional system and, stress it, and stretching it, but we're not running out of molecules or ways to make electrons. All of these things exist. All of these things exist. Now, every one of them has got a challenge, technical, financial, environmental. But it isn't that we're running out. The question is, what's the time frame, what's the cost, and what are the environmental mitigation factors that have to apply at the scale that's needed? So the challenge is not just technical, financial, or environmental, but can you scale them up? And can you do them in time? So I think it's not that you're running out of resources. It's just the complexity and scale of the problem is going to be the challenge. Personally, I'm optimistic that we'll do it. So when we come to thinking about a world of risk and opportunity, I want to close by pointing out, I think, a couple of points. Number one, growth, diversification, and substitution. I don't know how many people who have read in the literature or, or many people talk about the history of, of uh, energy and talk about the the coal age, the oil age, the gas age, and how these fuels substitute out. Well, if you really look at the data, they don't substitute. Oil didn't substitute for coal. Coal's bigger than ever. What it did was it found a market that coal couldn't serve, automobiles, because liquid fuel had high density, could be easily transported and stored. So what's really happened is you've gone from coal and added oil and a new market to meet the growth. And you added gas and a new market to meet the growth. My hope is that you'll add renewables to meet the growth and create new markets. The chances of you backing out in any near term any of these other segments, I think is unlikely because you're going to need every one you can get. So I think it's a matter sometimes of saying of having a growth market mentality as opposed to a substitution market mentality. Resource nationalism and its cousin, energy independence, which is a word we hear all the time today. Well, what's the challenge here? If you look at this, 
On the left, you have the largest producers of oil in the world. Many, how many people in the audience thought the U.S. was the third largest producer in the world? Yeah, one, one out of 40. Pretty amazing when you think about it, especially considering the fact that the U.S. has produced a quarter of all the petroleum that's ever been produced. By far the biggest oil business that ever existed. On the right, you have the consumers. U.S., China, Japan, Russia. All but Russia are deficit producers. They all consume. Europe is completely dependent on imported oil for all of its fuel, transport fuel. Japan has always been dependent. So the question you'd ask yourself is, well, what's the motivation here? Doesn't seem to bother Japan. It doesn't even seem to bother China. I think this is one of the key issues because if somehow with a combination of renewables and, and severe uh, gains, uh, draconian perhaps, gains in efficiency, the U.S. might be able to actually turn itself into a non-importer. The question you would ask yourself, what would happen to the rest of the system? If the U.S. didn't need any more oil, the price of oil would be pretty cheap, actually. Then what would happen? Then every developing country on Earth would go to convert to oil because it would be so cheap. So it's one of these challenges about if you become energy independent, do you also effectively become non-engaged in the energy system? And what happens if you're not engaged in the energy system? Does the world decide, for example, that it's not going to price oil in dollars anymore? And what happens to the currencies associated? So I'm going to point out it's complicated, energy independence, and the flip side is if we say we're going to be energy independent, maybe some of these others say, well, we're just going to hang on to our resource. And then we'll see who gets there first. So I think it's a complicated, and I think it's one of the, one of the issues that, that has both uh, challenges and opportunities. Decarbonization. Um, undoubtedly, the new variable in the whole history of energy production is the recognition that you have to decarbonize the system. Uh, we're going to get into discussions about uh, how that might happen and whether it'll work and other things. We could maybe do that in question period. But there are a couple of key points here. One, if you look at the global emissions, and what you, again, what you see here is the developed economies basically are flattening out. Even with the growth in their economies, they're basically going flat. But the big challenge is all of this. And in fact, almost all of this growth is China. China is currently building a coal plant a week. 250 coal plants are in the plant. At that level, the CO2 emissions, if they don't fix the emission issue, the emissions from the Chinese coal plants will exceed the total world CO2 emissions today. So the game is over then, if that's the case. So that's a key opportunity. And you see this in this data. Coal is projected to be by far the largest growth segment in the non-developed world. Why is that? It's cheap. Technology is available. But more importantly, what else? 
This is where resource nationalism and energy to independence as a mindset comes back to haunt you. China, who has the big reserves in coal? United States. Then China, Russia, India. All the, India and China, the big growth economies and the biggest consumer all have the biggest coal reserves, unlike oil. So the challenge is what's going to keep the U.S. from using its coal? Well, we're not building more coal plants. So then what happens? We ship it to China. The U.S. is on its way to being by far the world's largest coal exporter. So the U.S. will be the Saudi Arabia of coal. We'll ship it to China and they'll burn it. So this is a big challenge. And I think if you're going to solve the carbon problem, you have to solve the coal problem for the United States and China. That means sequestration. That means doing something else. You must solve that problem. You can't solve the problem. Because the biggest consumers, the biggest producers, are the biggest reserve holders. And it's probably inevitable that that's going to be a factor. Let me talk about technology. And I'll, I'm just about closed up here. What I call transcendent trends. These are trends that transcend. It's not about energy. They transcend all industries and all economic elements. There's three of them that really come to mind. Universal digitization, sensing, and computing, and connectivity. And it continues to grow according to basically following Moore's Law. Intel's announcement, which I thought was terrific the other day, $7 billion going into a new gen of chip fabs, is basically going to ensure that it's going to continue another 10 years. This is, says that computing basically doubles roughly every 18 months to two years. What's different, I mean, that's enough to make a difference. I mean, you look at the stuff that people have. People pull out an iPod and decide they want to download an HDTV movie. Inconceivable 20 years ago. Now, what are they doing? What do you think your digital consumption is going? Skyrocketing. In fact, data, what computing is going up, what computing is going up by a factor of two every two years, Data volumes are going up by a factor of two in less than a year. That means in the next year, think about exponentials. You know, you could take the next step. That next step is bigger than the integral under the curve before that, which means that next year we will collect and store digital information that exceeds the entirety of all the digital information ever collected next year. And the same the year following that. When I was at Chevron, I remember bringing this idea to the board of directors early because I said, this is going to be a problem. This was like 10 years ago. And they said, you know, you need to stay away from MIT or something. You know, uh, get back to the real world. Last year, when I went in, I, and of course, by that time, everybody knew the reality. I said, here's the data. We're buying hard disk to store data. This is just inside Chevron the equivalent, the digital equivalent of the Library of Congress every day. Every single day, we bought enough disk space to score all the equivalent digital. If you digitize the whole Library of Congress, we store that much data every single day. And the rate was increasing. And in three years, it would be twice as much. So this is going to be a deal. Engineering and manufacturing at what I call molecular transformation, if you want to call it nanotech, uh, particularly on the inorganic side, biotech, that is basically changing the genetic composition of living matter.
Both of these are extraordinarily powerful technologies, and they're going to matter. Uh, they're going to matter for materials. They're going to matter for energy sources and energy consumption, but these things are clearly going to have an impact. Then the third one, that sounds a little bit like this one, but it's not because this really is how do digits and humans, virtual worlds, automation, robotics. You know, people have talked, when I was a little kid, robots were going to happen, right? They never seemed to happen. Well, I think they are happening. And, and I think you're going to see, in a world completely enriched by digital access, you're going to see a world in which robotics are real and in the system. I would dare say in 10 years from now, I mean, you're talking about, there are already 1,000 microprocessors for every human in the world. What's going to happen in 10 years when these things are out there running around doing things? Um, and what will the energy requirements be to support such an infrastructure? So I think the intrinsic intersection of energy and information technology is one of the core things that are uh, going along. And, um, and then this rising com complexity, and I'll give you a specific example, The Black Swans. How many people have read The Black Swan? A few. Great book. Because what, what's the book about? The book says that some of the most significant impacts occur from improbable events that were not recognized as such. So low probability, they're out on the tail of the distribution, but high-impact events. You know, for example, uh, you know, a magnitude 9 earthquake is low probability, but if it happens, it has enormous impact. I would argue the best example of that is exactly what we've seen in the financial meltdown. That because of connectivity, which I talked about before, the world completely connected. Money are digits. Money are digits. That's all they are. The ability then to compute representations of money and investments, complex derivatives that nobody could do without computers, and then distributed into the system in such a way that nobody could figure out what they actually did. And there you are. So you created a system big, connected, and complex, and you produced what undoubtedly the people ran the models. I know they ran the models about their portfolio stabilities. It's not that they didn't do that. But what happened? The models weren't complete. They weren't complex enough, and they didn't show these outlying events that you see with big nonlinear complex systems. Well, I'm going to talk for a minute about the mother load, perhaps, at least coming down the road of this, and that's this smart grid. This is going to happen. There's money in the stimulus bill. Utilities are moving forward. This is ultimately the coupling of the two largest infrastructures in the world. It's not that people don't use IT today, but this is basically the integration of the two, where all energy transactions are now information transactions, like all money transactions became information transactions. This rides on the IT curve. Sensors are becoming so cheap and so ubiquitous that they will be everywhere. Now, does that bother people? Some yes, some no, but basically, walk up to your dishwasher and says, no, wrong time, can't run it, come back later. Now, it's good for the energy system, but it's a whole new level of complexity. 
creates tremendous efficiency gains and it's particularly valuable for variable sources like wind and solar. But it creates a system, in my view, of unprecedented complexity and scale. And what we've seen from big complex systems is they can have undesired modes of operation that we don't understand. We were talking about that at dinner about we simply don't, people do not understand nonlinear systems that have hundreds of billions of elements in them. They simply don't. And so I think one of the questions about this is as we raise the complexity and raise the scale, then what? We have introduced ourselves to a system that is arguably more efficient, more adaptable, but is it stable? And how do, we, how do we know? So I think it's a tremendous opportunity to participate in this, what will be a, a step function, I believe, in the way we manage uh, certainly power. But the question is, what will happen as we raise this complexity? So with that, I will be glad to answer some questions and, and just uh, say scale, complexity, and time are really what energy is about. Diversification is what energy is going to be about. But the old parts aren't going away anytime soon. And so there are opportunities to make those more efficient and evolve them along a pathway that I think gives us the societal and environmental performance we want. So thank you very much, and I look forward to your questions. Are, are you saying then there's no invisible hand to deal with that uh, complexity when you add the uh, computers as you and that type of technology to the IT thing? I think it's an interesting question. Uh, are, there, are there, in other words, do systems reach equilibriums? Or, you know, do systems adjust themselves? Absolutely. The real only question is, will they adjust themselves to states you might not like? Hmm. In other words, if you look at the current financial meltdown, the system arguably said people paid way too much for these assets. I'm going to make sure they fall in value. I have no particular concern about the fallout that goes with it. We will reach another equilibrium at 75% of the value. Yes, but if you look at the power system and you say, we will reach equilibrium with you having four hours of no power, that's not going to work. Well, not here. It's okay in some parts of the world, but I don't think that will fly. So will the system adjust? I think yes. I think the question is can you understand it enough and build a system sophisticated enough to keep you away from the things you really don't want? Well, this, this raises a good question. Does, it, does anyone control the energy system? That's a good, and I think it's an interesting question. It's not completely clear that that one could answer that. Good question, though. Yeah. Um, first, I wanted to thank you. I've really enjoyed your presentation this evening. Um, I was wondering, you talked about uh, improbable events. Mm -hmm. I, uh, you didn't touch upon Russia, and I was wondering what you think, how improbable, probable, given a, desta a destabilization mm -hmm. with, you know, they've blown through, what, 
one third to half maybe of their reserves of you know just propping mm -hmm. up their economy. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not the biggest oil producer. I mean, they're a big oil producer, but as far as their use, their infrastructure, I just wonder what kind of a curveball you might see coming down. Uh, it's a really good question. And when I talked about resource nationalism, and uh, could have gotten into an extensive discussion of, um, of particularly Russia, uh, and of course, it's not just Russia. I mean, 70% of the gas supplies in Europe are Russian. So Russia, Europe's hung out to dry. If the Russians were to actually go down and shut off the gas, Europe would freeze. There was no way they could make it up from their current energy system. So Russia's a big deal because it has big resources. It has complex politics. Uh, its revenues have fallen materially with the fall in oil prices. If you think back to the mid-80s. This was an explicit strategy of the Reagan administration. The way to win the Cold War to the extent possible was to break the Russian economy by dr driving the oil prices as low as you could drive them. And it was very successful. So, but the question is, we'll see what happens. Uh, personally, I think it'll sort of right itself and they'll be back in business. But were Russia to go unstable uh, would be a big effect. Yes? I wanted your opinion on scale, complexity, and time in terms of the, the solar PV industry. Okay. Well, I think I said before, I'm a big fan of solar PV because it has infinite scalability. It works to have a square foot run a stoplight. It works to have, you know, uh, 20,000 or 50,000 square feet run a Walmart. So it's, it's, it's fantastic in its deployability. It has a couple of shortcomings. One, it doesn't work all the time. So energy storage is an issue for electricity, and that's going to be made up some other way. Uh, in Europe, in, uh, basically what you're seeing in Germany, for example, which is a robust solar, um, moving toward a robust solar infrastructure, uh, you basically match solar with gas. And then you can turn it up and turn it down and stabilize it. Uh, I'm a big fan of, of PV. I think the questions are, how fast can it grow given the manufacturing infrastructure that you have? And then a more fundamental question for the United States, and I think it's really a potentially dangerous political circumstance for the stimulus package. If you needed to ramp up solar manufacturing, say by factor 10, where do you think it's going to come from? China. China's already... In fact, part of their infrastructure investment is to build up their solar factories so they can export it to the United States. So it's another, it's one of these things where the business and the technical issue and the government are all hooked together. U.S. pumps $50 billion through a stimulus into the system. 35 of it flows to China to buy solar panels to put in the United States. How does that go down? So... I'm a big fan of PV. I think it's going to get a lot bigger, uh, and it'll be, well, who knows, maybe it could easily get, you know, might, I think over time, get 10%, maybe, maybe even a little bit more. Is it going to get to 100%? No, I don't think so. But remember, at 50% growth rates, which is basically the growth rate of IT, uh, that's what's needed to get it to that 10% scale. Yes. What's uh, going on with liquefied natural gas? 
What are your views on that? Use LNG, liquefied oh. natural gas. The LNG system, well, the U.S. has kind of uh, marginalized its participation in the LNG market, although it built a lot of regas terminals. And there's another thing. This is one of these surprises, right? So one of the things that wasn't on the cards, nobody thought it would happen. What happened? U.S. oil companies figured out how to find gas in rocks they didn't think they could produce out of. The whole unconventional gas thing where you go in, drill wells, fracture, and produce them out of places in Pennsylvania and Ohio and West Virginia, Illinois. The U.S. has actually increased its gas production so much so, and that resource base, uh, by recent estimates uh, now, is so big that you're just going to back out LNG. You don't have to. You can just produce your own. This is where Boone Pickens is correct. That's the one thing he's correct about. I don't agree with the others. But the U.S. can produce... And particularly with, and if you add Canada, the U.S. is basically gas sufficient, so it's not in the LNG business. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is racing to globalize LNG, ramp up LNG out of the Middle East, ramp up LNG out of Southeast Asia and Australia. So it is globalizing. There will be more of it. The U.S. is not a particularly big player in the system because it has enough of its own gas. Thank you so much. This is absolutely fabulous. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.